gospel. Well, as we begin, I want to tell you a story from the Word of God that's a bit obscure, probably not one you'd think of readily, maybe one you've never even heard of. It comes from the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. Are you there yet in your Bible reading, or are you still stuck in the doldrums of Leviticus? Don't worry, it's coming, and uh, I promise you it's an interesting book. To recap, the people of God, the Israelites, had been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. They had been brought forth from Egypt by all sorts of miracles, the parting of the Red Sea. They had received God's law at Mount Sinai, and then from that point, they started wandering through the wilderness. And even from that moment when they first received the law, they started complaining, disobeying, irritating, annoying God, rejecting his commands. They built the golden calf before the ink was even dry on the covenant that God had made with them. And then they proceeded from there to get to the cusp of the land God had promised to them, only to say, eh, we'd rather go back to Egypt. It's a little too scary to go in there. And so God sent them on a 40-year trek wandering through the wilderness until finally they get to the cusp of this promised land and they get to this place right across the Jordan River and they're ready to go. And finally, after years and years of waiting and of complaining and of sin after sin after sin, they're ready to receive God's promises and enter the land. And it's in that time period in the book of Numbers that there's a king in a nearby nation, the nation of Moab, and his name was Balak. And Balak the king sees the Israelites there, this huge camp. He sees how they've destroyed some of his neighbors, these other kingdoms there on the other side of the Jordan. And he thinks, hmm, this is a problem. This is a problem for me. They might defeat me. Here's what I'm going to do. I am going to hire a pagan sorcerer named Balaam. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of Balaam. I kind of like to picture him in my mind as an evil wizard sort of person. Um, maybe that's just me and how I work. Uh, the Bible Project depicts him like this. Very much cooler than me. Uh, this, this evil guy who was well-known for being able to cast curses upon people. He was a well-known seer, a well-known magician, sorcerer, prophet, whatever you want to call him. And Balak goes to hire him. And at first, there's this strange account of a talking donkey. Yes, it's in the Bible. You should read it. Don't ever say the book of Numbers is boring. Go read it. Happened in the Bible first, not in the movie Shrek. Um, And anyway, he goes to a very strange way of getting there, God working some amazing things to show his power until finally he arrives with King Balak. And King Balak takes him up to a high cliff overlooking the people of Israel and their camp. And he says, you see them down there? I have hired you. I'm going to pay you all sorts of money for you to curse them. And so Balaam says, all right, here's what we got to do. Let's build us some seven altars here and let's sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams on those altars. And Balak says, yep, can't do. They get it all arranged. And Balaam says, all right, now I'm going to receive a message from God, and I'm going to curse these people by their God, by Yahweh. And so Balaam waits, and he's trying to get this message, and he finally gets a message, and the message is basically this. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How could I, how could I denounce whom God has not denounced? And Balak says, um, excuse me, that's not what I hired you for. Um, I hired you to curse them, not bless them, but maybe there's bad reception over here. So let's go to a different spot. So he takes him to a different spot where you can just see a little bit of the Israelite camp. And he says, maybe you can curse them from here. And so Balaam says, okay, great. Uh, Let's get seven altars again. Let's sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams. And let's see if God will speak to me from here and I'll be able to curse these people for you. And so they do all that. And Balaam gets another message from God. And this is his message this time in Numbers 23. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken 
and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He, God, has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. Balak's like, excuse me, uh, that wasn't what I hired you for either. And also, God hasn't beheld misfortune? Man, I've been tracking these people. They've been sinning against their God left, right, and center, and yet God says he does not behold trouble with them? That he's determined to bless them? This is, this is not going very well. But let's try one more time. So he takes them to a third location. Bad reception over there. Maybe over here you can finally curse God's people. And so Balaam once again goes through the whole thing. Seven altars, seven rams, seven bulls sacrificed. He waits for a message from God. And this time it's even worse for poor Balak. Because Balaam then receives a prophecy of what God will do through the people of Israel and through a king that will arise from these people, that will conquer all nations, that will set all things right, and will even conquer the kingdom of Moab. Balak is not very happy. No money for you. I want my money back. This is no good. You have blessed them these three times instead of cursing them. Now, why do I tell such a strange Old Testament tale? Because I think it's very powerful. Reading this passage this past year, I was just moved to tears to think of how God sees me. Think about how God looked upon his people. They had no idea that Balaam was up there being hired to curse them, and yet God was protecting them, and God was refusing to abandon, to curse, to forsake his people. And if that was the case, before Christ came and died for our sins, before the Spirit would dwell inside us permanently in the New Testament, even while these people were sinning and sinning and sinning from one camp to the next over and over again. In fact, in the very next chapter after this account, they would sin terribly. They would worship idols. They would commit gross immorality. But if it was the case that God blessed these people, set his blessing on these people in spite of all that, how much more is it true of us today in Christ that God has determined to bless us? God is, in some sense of the word, stubborn. Not in a sinful way, but in a godly way. He has stubbornly determined to bless us, to love us, and his love is steadfast, it is faithful, it is steady, it is unchanging, it is relentless. We are stubborn in our sin, but God is stubborn in his love for us in spite of it. As Paul said in Ephesians 1.3, we looked at last week, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are blessed. We have a great life. And the word for bless here means to speak good, to speak good words towards somebody. And I like that because that means that God's up there in heaven speaking good words about us. God is not up there calling Gabriel over and saying, hey, did you hear what Matt was doing down there? Man, I just got so sick and tired of him. He's not gossiping about us behind our back. He's not pretending to like us, but secretly gossiping about how annoying we are. If you're like me, you need to hear this truth. In Christ, God is not mad at you today. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, God is pleased. God loves you. You belong to him. You're beloved of him. You're blessed by him beyond measure. We have a great life, spiritually speaking. We are blessed and nothing can change that because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He became the curse that we deserve to receive from God 
for our sin so that we could get his blessings that he deserved but are given to us. That's amazing. Well, if you're not there already, turn back to Ephesians 1. We're going to continue in this incredible section of these blessings. And I want to remind you last week that we saw three particular blessings. In 1-4, the blessing of being chosen to be holy and blameless. Verse 5, the blessing of being predestined for adoption, we're his sons and daughter. And then we skipped down to 11 and saw not only are we adopted, but we're also guaranteed this inheritance one day. This week, we're going to see three more blessings in verses 7 through 14. So go ahead and look with me at Ephesians 1, and we'll start together in verse 7. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." What I see in the blessings we're going to look at today is a running theme of God being the great repairer, of God being the one who can fix anything, the only one who can repair what is most broken about us. Do you find yourself in need of repair today? Do you find yourself broken in some way or another by life or by your own sin? Well, find in this passage, even if you feel like you're broken beyond repair, Find healing beyond belief, as the song says. You see nothing in your life but damaged goods, but God sees something good in the making. He is not finished with us yet. There is nothing broken that God cannot fix. And we're going to see three specific things that God could fix in our passage today. First of all, God has fixed our greatest problem personally, the problem of our sin. And, and the guilt we have, the condemnation we deserve because of it, God has fixed that problem. But also, in verses 8 through 10, God will fix all problems. That's his guarantee. That's the future we have. And then lastly, God has fixed us securely, fastened us securely in him by his spirit at the very end of this passage. Glory be to our God, the great restorer, the great repairer, the one who can fix anything that is broken. Only he could take broken things such as we are, such as our lives are, and bring glory to himself out of it. Let's start here in verse 7 and focus on that first thing that God fixed, which is the problem of our sin. God has fixed the issue of our sin and guilt. He has freed us and he has forgiven us. That's amazing. Look back at verse 7 and you'll see two words there. You'll see redemption and forgiveness. So let's ask some questions like we did last week of each of these. First of all, what is redemption and forgiveness? Maybe you've heard those terms all your life, growing up in a Christian context, or maybe you're, you're new to this faith and you've never heard these before. What does redemption and forgiveness mean? 
Well, both of them are financial terms, using the illustration of a financial transaction, particularly to free somebody, to free a slave. So redemption means to buy back something, to buy something out of slavery. We still use that today in a financial sense when we talk about redeeming a coupon, for instance. Forgiveness has the idea of letting go of a debt, releasing somebody who is indebted to you, wiping that debt clear. So both of these terms could be used in the instance when somebody owed a lot of debt and they were going to be imprisoned for that, they were going to be enslaved for that, and yet somebody came and redeemed them. They bought them out of that, and they forgave them. They, they wiped away the debt. They paid the debt in full. One preacher, Matt Chandler, uses a powerful illustration for what this means for us personally. And that's the illustration of a Carfax. Ever heard of a Carfax? I hope you haven't heard of a Carfax, because hopefully you're not like us. Carissa and I have a nasty habit of every so often we get in an accident, our car gets totaled, and we have to buy a new car. Not our fault. It just keeps happening. We're very familiar with a Carfax. Just a few months ago, we were buying a car, and sure enough, we got the Carfax. You get it for a used car, and it tells you everything that happened to that car, hopefully, the repairs that happened to that car, who owned the car, how old the car is, all sorts of things in this Carfax, just to give you a sense of what you're buying there. So before you buy it, you know what this car has been through. It's similar, maybe you're more familiar, with a house inspection. Have you been selling a house, buying a house recently? And when you're buying a house, you get an inspection, right? Somebody goes and they they look at everything and they tell you, hey, some of these things are broken and need repair, or man, there's some major issues and you might not want to buy this house. Well, imagine you're getting a house inspection and you get the report back And man, this house has one problem after another. Its foundation is falling apart. There's some mold in the house. There's just brokenness everywhere. It kind of looks like this house right here, which in the Greenville market would be sold for about $300,000, $400,000. So you get the report back. Man, there's just, the house is falling apart. And yet in spite of all that, with no guarantee that they're going to fix these problems before you buy it, just buying it as is, you sign on the dotted line and you buy the broken down house. That's crazy to think about. Or let's say you're going to buy a car and you get the Carfax, and man, under that shiny hood, the car is barely drivable. It has had one problem after another. Kind of looks like this. And yet, in spite of it, you buy that car. You sign on the dotted line, and you buy that clunker, and you buy it as is, no warranty. That would be ridiculous. And yet that, in some small sense, is what God has done in buying you and I, in redeeming us. He gets the car facts on our lives, he gets the house inspection, and he looks at all those problems, all the sins of our past, and man, they are many. There's a lot of sin, there's a lot of debt, there's a lot of slavery to sin. And he looks at that, he sees all the problems, and he says, I'll buy that. I will sign on the dotted line. I will purchase that person. I will redeem them from their sin. I will wipe their debt clean. And yet he also sees in the future, not just the past, he sees in the future. He knows this person that he is purchasing is going to go on sinning time and time again. He knows all that up front. He knows what he's getting into. And yet, in spite of our mess and our brokenness, he still signs and purchases us for himself, redeems us from our sin. Talk about an amazing spiritual blessing that Paul has for us here. Talk about bringing glory to the name of God because only he would buy clunkers and lemons and broken down houses such as you and I are. This is amazing. 
Now, Paul goes on to explain and answer the question, where does this redemption and forgiveness happen? Well, we shouldn't be surprised. Look down at the verse 7 again, and you'll see how it starts, like all these blessings do, in him, in Christ. This has been able to happen to us. Everywhere else in this world, we're just broken, we're messy, we're rejected, we're unloved. But in Christ, we are loved, we are forgiven, we are redeemed. It's a one place we find a place to belong. In him, we are forgiven. And then how does this happen? How are we redeemed? Well, look back at the verse and you'll, say, you'll see it is through his blood. Through his blood, we've received this forgiveness and redemption. Now, maybe you're asking yourself, why does the Bible talk so much about blood? I mean, we sing about it all the time. Why do Christians talk about this so much? Maybe you're new to the faith or maybe you've never even thought about that. Why through his blood? Well, because it cost a lot for us to be redeemed. Hebrews 9.22 says, without shedding blood, there is no forgiveness. There has to be a sacrifice. And our sins are messy. And so the sacrifice will be messy. There will need to be a violent death. And so when the Bible speaks of Christ's blood, it's shorthand for referring to Christ's difficult, terrible, agonizing death on the cross for us so that he could pay the penalty that our sins deserve. Christ paid it all. He paid it in full through his blood. And then finally, why are we redeemed? We'll look back at the verse, the very end of the verse, and then going into verse 8. He says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. How could people like us, the clunkers, the broken down houses, how could we possibly be forgiven? Because of his rich, rich grace. It doesn't make sense. We don't earn it. We could never deserve this. There's no merit in us. We don't have any worth. We can never rack up enough works to earn this redemption and forgiveness. But because of the glory of his grace. He has redeemed and forgiven us. Now, may we never get over amazing grace. It is rich. It is deep. It is unlimited. We could never outsin the grace of God. Grace upon grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. Grace greater than all our sin. When you think of grace and you think of the riches of grace and the lavishing of grace... I want you to think of a waterfall. Here's a few waterfalls in our neck of the woods. I don't know about you, but I like to hike to a waterfall and just see all that water be pouring over. That's how I want you to picture grace. It is rich. It is unceasing. Picture yourself soiled and dirty. You can never get clean on your own, but you stand under that waterfall and all of a sudden you're washed clean. You're washed clean and there's no end to it. God's grace can wash away the dirtiest of stains. God's grace can redeem and forgive people like us. And he deserves all the glory for that. So God has fixed our problem, maybe our greatest problem, the problem of our sin. But what about the problems that sin causes? What about the brokenness of your life, the brokenness of a cursed creation, all the broken pieces scattered around us of our lives? Can God fix those things as well? That brings us to our second blessing, Yes, God will fix every problem. God has filled us in, in verses 8 through 10, he's filled us in on his plan to fulfill 
everything, to fulfill it all, to fulfill even us. Look down at the very end of verse 8. Paul says, In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Well, what does this mean, making known? What's a word that has the idea of being brought into the inner circle, being let in on the information? John 15, 15, Jesus says, hey, because you disciples are my friends, I will make known to you what the plan is. We are on the inside. We have, in some sense, the inside scoop on God's plan to fix the world. And that's an amazing blessing because we don't deserve to know anything. And yet God has graciously, because of his grace, made known to us his plan. And he's made known to us the mystery of his will, Paul says. And what does mystery mean? We talked about this a little bit last week. Don't think of mystery here like God's up there in heaven and he's going to write the next great Agatha Christie detective whodunit. And man, it's going to be a bestseller. God's writing a mystery up there. That's not the mystery that Paul has in mind here. Instead, in the New Testament, mystery just means something that was unknown, unrevealed in the Old Testament era particularly, but now in Christ has been made known, has been revealed. We can now know about it. Particularly in Ephesians 3, 6, Paul says that the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, this mystery is that anyone can get in on the gospel. It's not for a particular ethnic group. It's not just for the Jews. It's for all ethnic groups. All people can get in on this gospel. I love Ray Ortland's summary of the gospel in three simple points. Number one, I'm a complete idiot. Number two, my future's incredibly bright. And number three, anyone can get in on this. There's the gospel. We're sinners. We're broken. And yet our future is bright. How is this possible? Through the gospel, and anyone is welcome into this gospel. Believe on Christ. Well, that is what making known is. But how did this making known happen? We have to go to the end of verse 8. He says, in all wisdom and insight. God has graciously revealed his plan to us. And it's all wise. God is the wisest one. He knows everything. He has all insight. This plan is going to work perfectly. He knows how this world works. And in his grace, not only has he wisely done this plan, but he allows us to have wisdom as well and insight into his plan and even for our daily lives. That's an incredible blessing. Well, why did he do this? Why did he make known to us? Look back at verse 9. It says, according to what? According to his purpose. Or you could call it his good pleasure. He made known his will simply because he delighted to tell us about it. Ever know a secret or some interesting fact? that Man, it's just so exciting. You cannot wait to tell somebody about this very interesting fact. The secret. Oh, I just can't wait. I can't hold it in. That's as if what God is expressing here. It is his delight. He is excited to make known to us his plan. But it's no nefarious plot. It's not some secret evil plan. It is a delight for him to reveal to us his plan for our good and for the restoration of this world. God loves to fix what's broken. And he loves to let us know how he's going to do that. Well, where is all this going? His purpose, where is it going? Well, he says, this purpose was set forth in him. So once again, it's in him from beginning to end. It was set forth in him. Perhaps referring to the time when Christ 
came and was born and died on the cross and rose again. It was publicly displayed. God started this plan, really from eternity past, but particularly in Christ's coming. He set it forth. He made it known. It's being preached all over the world in him. And yet he'll end the verse by saying it's all going to end up united in him. It's in him from beginning to end. That is where this story begins, and that is where this story will end. Well, let's flesh out verse 10 a little bit. This is a very powerful verse, and I want you to get a grasp on what's going on here. Look at verse 10. He says, this purpose that's set forth is a plan. What does he mean by plan? Well, this word is what a household steward or some sort of manager would do. It's what they do every day. In other words, they keep things organized, right? A good manager, a good CEO, a good boss organizes things and brings order out of chaos. So God, in some sense, is an organizer. He keeps things organized. And you look at creation and you can see this. There's beautiful symmetry. There's beautiful design. There's precision. And we, in his image, enjoy art and create art because we're made in his image and we have that creativity as well. Even simple things like cleaning up messes are part of being made in the image of God. He enjoys bringing order out of chaos, and he's created us to as well. Now, speaking of which, some people in this room have desks at work or wherever that look like this. I mean, just look at that. Oh, it's just perfect. It's beautiful. And then some have desks like this. Maybe use the excuse that it's organized chaos. I don't know. We're made a little bit differently in how we express this, but God is more like this first one. God is organized. In fact, if you're a perfectionist and you like things just so, go ahead and nudge your spouse who maybe is a little bit different and say, hey, I'm just being in the image of God, okay? So you have to deal with it. I'm just organizing. That's how God made me. Now, let's say I came up here today with a Lego set or with a bucket of Legos, and I just threw it down. I threw it all over the stage. Would that bother you a little bit? Ooh, all those things on the stage, somebody might step on them. It's just a little disorganized. You'd want to come and clean it up, right? That's what you do when you come into your child's room and it's absolute chaos, Legos everywhere. Clean this all up. Maybe you get down and start cleaning it up. Oh, you see, they broke the the, the TIE fighter Lego. We've got to put this back together and you put it back together and you enjoy that sort of thing. I certainly enjoy that sort of thing. In fact, one of the best things about being a dad is that now it is socially acceptable for me to play with Legos again. Uh, Karis loves them. I got them out of the attic. Oh, man, we play with them almost every day, and we enjoy putting things back together. She mostly enjoys tearing them apart, but I enjoy putting things back together. But far better than our desire to have things put back together, our picking up broken Legos or organizing desks, far better than that, God is a great organizer, the great reconstructor, He doesn't just straighten up a dirty house, organize a disorganized work project or a desk. He doesn't just reassemble a broken Lego. He's straightening up, organizing, reordering, fixing a whole broken universe. He's fixing it. He's restoring it. He's rebuilding. And when will he do this? Well, Paul says it will be at the fullness of time. When time reaches its conclusion, when time itself will end, because time had a beginning, God was before that, and one day God will bring the fullness, the completion of time. 
Now, we know in Galatians 4 that Christ's coming as a baby was described in some sense as a fullness of time. And yet here Paul says the fullness of time has not quite yet come yet. So the fullness of time is already and yet it's not quite full. We're awaiting the full completion of time when not just time will be fully completed and fulfilled, but we ourselves will. God will unite all things in him, heaven and on earth. He will unite. This word means to sum up, to summarize, to put things under a heading. It's another organizational word. God's plan is to put everything under a heading, everything in its proper place, all the broken pieces put back together under this heading in submission to this heading in him. Christ bringing everything into organization under him. Every single thing, heaven and on earth, all will be put right. In Colossians 1.20, a parallel passage, Paul uses this term instead. God, through Christ, will reconcile to himself all things. He'll bring things back together. He's putting the pieces back together through the peace of Christ. All things will be fixed and restored. Really? All things? Let's think through some categories here. He says heaven and on earth. That seems to be everything. What about creation? What about famines, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods? When it's too hot, when it's too cold, earthquakes, evil, vicious creatures like lions and tigers and worst of all, mosquitoes. Will God restore all those things? Yes, he will. In fact, Paul in Romans 8 uses the same word for our redemption to talk about the redemption of creation itself. Christ will make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found and creation itself will be restored. What about angels in heaven? Well, that's an easy one. They, as they have for all eternity, will continue to praise God. But in Revelation 5, we hear that they're going to sing a new song. Worthy is a lamb who was slain. They will be brought in Christ. Well, what about evil angels? The evil one, Satan and his forces. Is he included in this plan to unite all things in Christ? The great villain who corrupts everyone and everything who's made a mess of our lives with his allies, our flesh, and this evil world around us, all the lies that he's told us. What a great activity to do, to just track through all the lies that the evil one and his allies have been speaking into your heart. I tried to make a list. It's a long list. We believe so many of his lies. It causes so much chaos and destruction. One of the lies he's been telling me recently is that the gospel doesn't work. The gospel doesn't work. It's not enough to fix what's broken. And I think he lies to us about that because he knows if we can doubt the gospel, the gospel is his death blow, is what will ultimately defeat him, is what has defeated him on the cross and in the resurrection. And so he wants to lie to us about its power. He's so active in our lives. He's a roaring lion. He's devoured many. And haven't we seen that in our church corporately in recent months and in our lives, certainly individually. Is this evil one outside of God's plans to restore all things? No. Even his evil plans will prove in the end to be God's instruments. He too will be brought in Christ as the conquered enemy. He will be cast into the lake of fire forever. He will be utterly and completely defeated. The one who messes up all things will himself be messed up, or rather cleaned up, organized all his chaos away for good. What the enemy means for evil, 
God will turn for our good and for his glory. God has a plan, and it's stronger than all of Satan's schemes. Satan roars as a lion, but the lion of Judah roars louder, and he will have the victory in the end. What about the unsaved? Well, they too will be brought in Christ in this sense. They will confess him as Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, says Philippians 2. But they will be in him in a different sense, with eternal conscious torment in Christ's just wrath. And that's uncomfortable, and that's sobering. It should be sobering, and it should compel us to share with them this good news that anyone could get in on this if only they turn to him before it is too late. What about the saved? Well, that's the best news yet. We will fully, completely, finally be in him completely. All our longings will be fulfilled. All tears will be wiped away. All sighing will flee away. In fact, things will be so new that Isaiah says the former things will not even be remembered. Imagine that. The glory will be so great that we can't even remember all the terrible things that happened. When we get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. What a glorious day that will be. God will fix all that is broken. God has a fix-it list. And his fix-it list is different from our honey-do list or your to-do list. In this fact, God actually gets it all done. He will not leave anything unchecked on this list. So let's consider God's fix-it list. The death of loved ones. God will fix. God will restore in this way. We've seen this recently. We've seen the passing of dear friends and members. Just in this past month or so, Judy Smith, Barbara Petter, Larry Hall, Jan Samuels, even this past week, and our hearts ache and we mourn. Is there any hope? Yes, because they were in him, and so they are with him even now. And one day, we too will be brought fully in him, with him, and with them, reunited, resurrected. He has promised, we too shall rise, says the song. As sure as Christ rose from the dead, we are in him, we too will rise. We can no more give up hope that we and our loved ones in Christ won't be resurrected than we can put Christ back in the grave. Our resurrection and the resurrection and future hope of our loved ones in Christ is assured, and those tears of grief will be wiped away. It will be fixed and restored. What about the destruction caused by sin, whether yours or someone else's? Your life has been ruined, but God is rebuilding those ruins in him. And one day, that great construction project called your sanctification, it will be completed, and we will look back, and we will see only his grace in our lives using even our evil and turning it for good, sanctifying us day after day. What he started, he will complete. He will not give up on us. All those moments of hurt and doubt and despair, we will look back and see it was worth it all when we see Jesus. What about divisions among Christians? They will be reconciled. Well, this is a glorious hope. Denominations will be reunited. The worship wars will cease Well, who will win the worship wars? Which side? God. God will win. And we won't be gloating that we were right. We will all be united perfectly in him. And isn't it ironic that this very subject of talking about the end of all time 
causes division among Christians. Like we talked about last week, this is another subject that good Christians can disagree. Man, I must be a glutton for punishment, predestination, and eschatology two weeks in a row. What's going on with this? But I think we could all agree on this verse, that Christ will come back, that he will make all things new, that all things will be united in him. The details may be hazy, but instead of trying to figure out beyond what the Bible tells us, we should be content with what the Bible has made clear to us. We don't deserve to be made known about anything, yet God in his grace has revealed what he's revealed. And so we should be charitable toward those who disagree. And one day we will all be united around the throne and nobody will say, hey, I got it all right. I was right. Here, let's make a little right camp over here and make a wrong camp over there. No, we will all be so transfixed on Jesus, the lamb who was slain. We will be reunited. And we could go on and on on all the other details of God's fix-it list, from disability to the devastations of war to mistreatment to miscarriage to broken relationships. All will be restored. There is nothing so broken that God cannot fix it. Glory be to him, the great repairer of all that plagues us, all our problems. Doesn't this give you hope for your week ahead? But maybe you ask, how do I know this is going to happen? How do I know that my sin each week won't cancel me out of this glorious inheritance, this glorious future? Well, that's where Paul ends here in this list of blessings with assurance that God who saved us will keep us to the very end. God, in the final blessing, has fastened us firmly, has fixed us in him by his spirit. Look down at verses 13 and 14. First of all, let's ask, who is sealed? The blessing is that God has sealed us by his spirit. Well, who who gets this seal? Look at verse 13. You also who heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Notice the process that Paul lays out there. You hear, and then you believe. Well, that should give us motivation in our evangelism. How can they hear without a preacher? So we should be sharing the gospel with others. That's all of our stories. We heard the gospel, and we believed in him. What did we hear? Well, he says, it's the word of truth. In a world of lies, of chaos, We have absolute truth. But more than just intellectual facts, he says this is the gospel, the good news of your salvation. In a world of bad news, we believe some very, very good news that we're saved, that we've been rescued and redeemed, that we're safe in a world of danger because we believed in him. And so we've been placed in him, as he said right at the start of the verse. As with all the other blessings, this too takes place in him. We believe in him, we're placed in him, we're saved in him. Well, how does this happen? How are we sealed? With what are we sealed? He says, with the promised Holy Spirit. This is one of the great promises of the Old Testament. Repeated often, explained in the New Covenant, that one day God would give his spirit, not just temporarily like we see in the Old Testament, but permanently to his people. And in Acts 2, that promise is fulfilled. The Spirit is poured out, and we should never lose the sight of this amazing blessing we have, that we have the Holy Spirit living within us. You don't go anywhere where the Spirit does not dwell within you if you are in Christ. This is an amazing blessing. 
that the Spirit, a co-equal member of the Trinity, dwells within us and seals us. Well, maybe you're asking, what does seal mean? Is this like an ARF ARF type of seal? A Navy seal? No, no, not those. This is a seal as used in the ancient world, some sort of wax that's stamped with something on it. And one commentator gives a list of the uses of those sorts of things in the Bible times, and he gives three. First of all, to secure something shut, like a scroll. Even in our day, we use seals to seal up produce products. Or maybe to authenticate something, to mark it as genuine, like the king's seal. This is an official king's edict. Or maybe like a notary's seal we might still get today. Or to show ownership of something. Some really cool people that I'm jealous of have a little seal, a little stamp that they put in all their books, and it says, from the library of so-and-so. I think that's pretty cool. This is mine. This is my book. Well, which of them is this, being sealed with the Spirit? Well, I think in some way it is all of them. God has made us secure in himself. He will never let us go by his Spirit. He has authenticated us as his own, as genuine believers. Those people are mine. And he has shown that he owns us. As much as we get an inheritance from him of glorious future, yet in the same sense, we're also his inheritance. We are his possession. That's an amazing thought. Well, as I thought about how to illustrate this, I thought about something my wife gave me a few years back. And that is this wristband here. You can see it here on my right arm. And on the inside of this wristband, it says, love you to the moon and back. And I love this wristband. I love to look at it, and it reminds me that no matter who likes me or who doesn't like me, no matter who likes my sermon or not, that I can go home and still wear this and still see my wife and know that I'm loved by her. She's sealed me as hers. She's marked me with love and favor. Because, I'll be honest with you, I'm a people pleaser. I don't know if any of you are, but I struggle with feeling accepted. And so this wristband reminds me that at least my wife accepts me. That if I have an utter dud of a sermon or a failure of a day, I can come home and still know that my wife loves me, that my daughter Karis loves me, that my mom is still my biggest fan and she'll probably post something embarrassingly nice on Facebook about me, that my Nana, who by the way is probably watching, hi Nana, she'll watch the sermon, she'll comment and say it's the most wonderful thing, even if all I did was get up here and recite the tax code to you. Oh, she'd still think that was great. Wonderful sermon, the next Charles Spurgeon among us. I can rest secure no matter what I do in the love of my family and of my wife. That's encouraging. But if that's encouraging, how much more should it encourage me today that God loves me, that he has put his seal upon me? Far more than a wristband, he's actually written my name on his heart. He's graven me on his hands. He seals me so firmly that he puts himself within me, the spirit within me. He can no more cast me aside than he can cast off him very self. Glory to his name. But as if that isn't encouraging enough, this idea of being sealed, Paul is going to add one more illustration of how God has secured us. And he's going to give us the why of sealing us. What did he seal us for? Look at the end of verse 14. To guarantee our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Or could be translated, redeem possession of it. He uses the same word for redemption that we talked about at the very beginning. So he's continuing this illustration of finances. 
where he used the term redeem earlier to buy us back from sin's penalty, now redemption is buying us not just from sin's penalty, but from sin's very presence, where we'll be finally redeemed, receive the ultimate inheritance, same word as used before, where all will be put right. And in the midst of this, he says the Spirit is the guarantee of that redemption. When you're buying a house, what do you have to do? You have to put down some sort of down payment oftentimes, or buying a car. You guarantee it. You invest some money into it to show your seriousness to the bank or to the seller. That's the illustration Paul uses here. The Holy Spirit within us is the guarantee, the down payment for our future total redemption. What better way to show us that we are his own, that we can never fall from his tight grip of hands on our lives than to place his own spirit within us? His own spirit lives within us, guaranteeing us, sealing us as his own for all time until the end. But notice another why. The very, very end of verse 14, the very end of this section of all these blessings, this long sentence where Paul's explaining the wonders of the gospel, he ends with this, just as he did two times before, one final chorus to this hymn of praise, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. And that's how I want us to end this morning. Putting all of these wonderful blessings together, how do we respond? How should we feel? What should we take for our weeks ahead? Well, I really only have one big takeaway for you. If all this is true, then it's not about you. It's not about you. To misquote the old song, you're so vain, you probably thought this passage was just about you. But it's about way more than just you. If this is true, this is beyond you. Yes, there are particular blessings here for us as individuals. We are individually redeemed. We're individually saved, individually sealed and chosen. But it's beyond just us. First of all, it's beyond just us because the pronouns used in this passage are plural. So it's not just about you getting saved individually. It's about a whole group of people that God has chosen and redeemed and forgiven and sealed. It's about the church a group of believers that have all been redeemed from their sin. And if that is true, if all this is true of this group of people who've been redeemed and forgiven, why wouldn't we want to hang out together? Why wouldn't we want to show love and transparency and and, and vulnerability and welcome and kindness toward one another? If this is true of us, if we were all sinners, and yet somehow, by God's sheer grace, we've been redeemed, we'll want to open up our lives with one another. We'll want to share our very lives with one another. That would be an attractive place that the world outside would long to come and join. The church is God's plan A. We'll see that very clearly in the book of Ephesians. And we see that even here in this passage by saying these blessings are for a group of people in Christ. But even beyond that, it's not about you because it's all about God's glory. To the praise of his glory is repeated three times for a reason. So that should mean that we should seek to be God-centered, not man-centered, not concerned with our own problems or preferences or opinions. No, we should say in our hearts, may Christ be magnified in me. May he receive all the glory. May Christ be all and I be nothing. Because that's where this world is headed, right? All things will be united in him. That's where the world is headed. So that's how we should live our lives. We are in him, so our life should be all about him. God's glory 
should be central to our lives. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we should do all for the glory of God. That is what life is all about. Yes, all these blessings are very encouraging. I hope you are encouraged by the gospel. But beyond that, I hope you're encouraged by our great and amazing Savior. And that you respond with praise. That you can't help but sing praise to pray and and give glory to our God because what an amazing Savior he is. I hope you have gotten a picture of just how amazing he is so your heart is drawn to praise his amazing grace. But if not, if, if you're still discouraged and just have a hard time seeing how all this is true, spend time in this passage until your heart sings with praise. You just can't help yourself. You have to seek God. You have to pray because life is not about you. You can't make it in this life on your own. You have to seek God. You recognize he's at the center of it all, and so you want to talk to him all the time. You want to seek his face. You want to praise him. You want to say, without you, I can't do anything. I want to pray all day long. I want to praise all day long because you are everything, and I am nothing. All of this is what our theme is all about, what Ephesians is all about, what the Bible really is all about. God's glory through the church in Christ. Maybe we should say it together as we close. Say that phrase with me. God's glory through the church in Christ. That's our mission. That's what life is all about. And I hope you're able to see this amazing God, his glory, the great repairer, the great restorer who fixed the problem of our sin, fixes us firmly in himself. And one day, will fix all problems and unite all things in him to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's praise him together now. Oh God, words fail to describe how amazing you are. Who are we that you would buy us out of our sin? Who are we that you would forgive our so many sins? Who are we that you would seal us with your spirit Who are we that you would bless us with so many spiritual blessings? We are so, so blessed this morning. I pray that every heart here would sense this incredible blessing, this incredible favor, this incredible grace that you have toward them even now. That they would find fresh truths so they would reflect what an amazing Savior I have. Reveal to them maybe one aspect of this passage, Lord, that they could just meditate on, that they're adopted or that they're sealed. Encourage their hearts this week so they can't help but praise you for how glorious you are. May your son be all and may we be nothing. And it's in his name we pray.